0: The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Guys,
1: everybody
0: ready? This is New England.
2: Of silk or
3: satin. The first of the Boston Strangler's murders it was Anna Slessers. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found They were
2: strangled, strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing.
3: Either or the, Well, of course, I called her grandma. They became sisters in death.
4: The similarities led the original investigators to believe this group of murders were committed by the same person.
1: My dearest Chuck... May this letter find the The
3: Sophie Clark murder raised a lot of questions.
2: That type of change in victim would tell me we're not dealing with the same guy. Patricia Jane
4: Bissett. She was having an affair with her boss. She was pregnant.
0: And I remember detecting the slightest bit of a tremble
3: in his hands. When she asked a male friend why men felt threatened by women, he replied that, quote... They're afraid women will laugh at them.
1: And she made fun of me and taunted me. What are you boy, little boy?
3: She asked a group of women why women felt threatened by men. They said, quote, we're afraid of being killed. I, I,
4: I, I lost control when I joked.
2: At headquarters, the homicide squad checks every lead, grasps at every
0: straw. Episode six: Measuring Man. Just for a moment, an important moment, we're traveling back to the Boston that existed before the stranglings, before the fear. This is the fall of 1960. We're standing at the corner of Broadway and Ellery, just between Harvard Square and Central Square. The street is full of people, hip girls in cute skirts and sunglasses, guys in fedoras and smart jackets. The buildings are a little run down, But that means cheap rent and a neighborhood full of artists and students and young working people. People like Carol. She asked us not to use her last name. Carol and her sister moved here from Nova Scotia.
3: Back then, it was very easy to get a green card and you could just sort of apply for it through the post office. And my sister and I were excited by the idea of living in Boston. It sounded like an exciting place to go.
0: Carol worked as a nurse, and her sister was a secretary at MIT, and they were having a blast living in the city. They'd go to mixers and free rehearsals of the Boston Symphony.
3: On weekends, they might find a little surprise at the door. We used to get parcels from our mother, who knew that there was Saturday delivery in Boston. So uh, she would send parcels so that they arrived in the Saturday mail. And one Saturday morning, our doorbell rang, and we opened it fully expecting to see the postman, and there was another man standing there. Carol didn't know this guy, and neither
0: did her sister. The man was short, solidly built, with a square jaw. His nose was bigger than most, and he'd styled his hair
3: into a pompadour. He told us his name was Johnson, that he was a representative from a modeling agency, and he had seen us in the neighborhood, and he would like to take our measurements and, you know, send our names in to this agency. That's right, a door-to-door modeling scout. We kind of chuckled and said, well, sorry, we have full-time jobs, we're not interested. He was quite polite, but the idea of modeling, we we thought it was pretty fluffy, actually, and we were quite serious about, you know, starting our careers and so on. And what was your reaction when he said that he'd seen you
0: around, which suggested that he somehow had seen you on the street and then found out where you lived? Isn't
3: that a little bit creepy? Well, you know what? We were naive enough not to be particularly bothered by that. I suppose we kind of assumed uh, in a simplistic way that maybe he was standing on the street corner and saw us go in. You know, we didn't, we were new to the city. So, uh, you know, we thought maybe this is what happens in the city. It wouldn't have happened in our small town at home. (laughs) So he left and he said, well, and I'll see you around the neighborhood. So we, did, we just sort of forgot about it. Then um, on the following Monday, two days later, after my sister had gone to work, someone knocked at the door. And um, I didn't open it because it was eight o'clock in the morning. And I asked who it was, and he said, ''It's Mr. Johnson. I spoke to you on Saturday, and I'd like to speak to you again.'' And that kind of frightened me, and for some reason I had the wits to say, ''Well, my boyfriend is here, and he's telling me not to open the door.'' You, you lied? I was alone, yes. I guess I thought that he wouldn't be interested in coming in if there was another male present. And he said, okay, and away he went.
0: That Friday, her sister came home and had trouble unlocking the door. Someone had tried to jimmy their way in. Carol and her sister called the cops. And to their surprise,
3: they said... Girls, you have nothing to worry about. We picked up a fellow at your door this afternoon. We picked up a fellow at your door this afternoon? Yes, trying to get in. And they said to him, What number are you looking for, sir? At which point he uh, ran into the backyard. And when he got into the backyard, he couldn't get out because there was a big fence. The police fired a warning shot. And so they were able to arrest him. And they said that he told them he wanted to see us uh-huh. and he uh, would uh, wanted to uh, get into the apartment and wait until we came home. You, you know, I kind of remember walking in the police station and it being uh, a fairly... Um, barren and cold place, and and it was a new experience for us for sure. He was brought in. I can remember seeing him standing there. Did he look at you at that moment? Oh, yes, yeah. Just a a blank stare. He he wasn't trying to be friendly or anything. He just stood there and... um, I do remember that when we finished describing what we had to say he said everything these girls have said is truthfully true it was it was there was, was it was sort of sad the way he said it you know as if he was giving up and and then they took him away
0: The police told Carol and her sister that it wasn't an isolated incident. Several other women had reported similar encounters. He'd show up at women's doors, polite and even charming, but with lascivious intent, as the police called it. Often the man would talk his way in and take measurements. In some cases, women reported going to bed with him consensually. But other times, when he'd been rebuffed, the man would come back to the apartment, slip the lock, and wait. The police called this guy the measuring man. There was a one-day trial on May 3, 1961, and Carol testified alongside other women. The man was found guilty on eight counts of breaking and entering, but not guilty of, quote, lascivious acts. He was sentenced to two years in prison and would not be back on the street until May 1963. The Measuring Man's name was Albert DeSalvo. A couple of years later, Carol and her sister returned home to Nova Scotia. When they looked back at their adventure in Boston, The Measuring Man was one of the strangest chapters. But even now, knowing what she does about Albert DeSalvo, Carol still
3: finds it hard to believe she was in real danger. Uh, I did not sense a violent personality. Uh, didn't want anything to do with them, mind you, you know. And and, and uh, uh, was happy to be as far away from him as possible. But there was nothing about his demeanor that would have made us worry about him killing us.
0: Fast forward to Boston in September 1963. The Strangler loomed in the imagination of every woman in Boston, and he seized headlines far beyond the city.
2: By now, the story had been published abroad. The London Daily News and Star reported that another Jack the Ripper might be loose in Boston. Stories appeared in newspapers in France, Spain, Germany, and Sweden.
0: The Charles Street Hardware Store at 54 Charles Street has been deluged with requests for door chains, window locks, and door locks. Dick Gunman, manager of the store, said this time the requests have come from young girls. He said, quote, Girls in their teens and 20s are buying so many locks, I can't keep them in stock. They're really scared, and I can't say I blame them. More than 2,000 agents and detectives scrambled to catch the strangler. They'd interviewed people in mental institutions, they'd rounded up gay men and women for no clear reason, they'd pushed on petty criminals and they'd scraped every corner of the crime scenes. But the Boston Strangler continued to evade them.
2: Lieutenant a, Detective oh, Edward F. Sherry has been working on the strangling since the very first case. He knows the frustrations better than most. Here. I'd like to talk to them. Bye-bye.
0: There's an image that perfectly captures the hopelessness investigators felt back then. It's from a television interview Lieutenant Edward Sherry gave to NBC Nightly news anchor Chet Huntley.
2: After considerable amount of work, by all concerned, we did locate this particular man.
0: Sherry is sitting alone in his office. The camera is zoomed in on his face. He's clearly uncomfortable, and maybe sad. He can barely look up. And
2: we had to let him go. It's sort of heartbreaking at times. We, we get our teeth into something, we get our foot in the door, so to speak, and something looks good, we stay with it, we hate to go home, and Many a morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, the the bottom falls out of our uh, hot lead, so to speak. That's when the frustration comes in.
0: In that moment, Sherry spoke for the whole force. The police knew they were failing. Boston had never seen a killer quite like this. And the lack of evidence, the public panic, the media attention— It all combined to make this case uniquely difficult.
4: What was compounding it was the murders. You know, they weren't all in Boston. They were in different locations. So, you know, things were very parochial back then. You know, well, we're Boston. You know, we're Lynn. We're Lawrence. We have our own police departments.
0: These departments rarely had to communicate with each other before, let alone share evidence. The police were stuck, but the stranglings kept coming. On September 8, 1963, Evelyn Corbin was found in her home in Salem. Evelyn was divorced, a factory worker, 58 years old. She'd love to play piano and violin.
4: Mrs. Corbin was last seen alive at a 10.30 a.m. breakfast with her neighbor. When Corbin failed to return for lunch, her neighbor began to worry. She found Mrs. Corbin's body on the bed with
0: one leg dangling over the side. She'd been strangled with two of her own stockings. A third was wrapped around her ankle. The next victim was Joanne Graff. Joanne was 23 and worked as an artist at a design firm across from a hospital. She taught Sunday school. Joanne was found in her Lawrence apartment on November 23rd, the day after John F. Kennedy was shot. She was strangled with two nylon stockings and a leotard. The next victim would be the 11th attributed to the Strangler.
1: She had just gotten a job with a clothing store, Filene's, I believe, in Boston.
0: The victim was Mary Sullivan. We told you her story in the very first episode. Mary was only 19. I know she was thrilled about moving up to Boston and
1: starting a career. But of course that never happened.
4: She moved in with two other roommates, and she was actually moving in her belongings on January 4th, 1964. Her first full day in the apartment,
1: and her last day on earth.
0: Police found Mary Sullivan strangled with one of her stockings. She had also been violated with a broomstick, which the killer left protruding from her body.
4: I think the manner in which she was displayed, you know, with a, with a card that said, you know, Happy New Year's and, you know, a big bow around her neck. I think this was really the final straw in terms of, we've got a maniac on the loose here. We need to catch this guy. Mary Sullivan's body, what was done, I think stunned a lot of people.
0: Mary was the Boston Strangler's youngest victim. And she was also an Irish Catholic girl in an Irish Catholic city. The public was furious. The police were demoralized. And something had to change.
4: So that's when the Attorney General Edward Brooks stepped in and said, OK, I'm going to take the unprecedented step of forming a task force. And we're going to coordinate all of these investigations into one task force. They're going to work out of the statehouse House." I'm going to assign an attorney to be in charge. We're going to pick detectives who have worked on the cases, and they're going to form the task force. Extraordinary methods of investigation are needed to deal with these highly abnormal
0: and uncommon crimes. Edward Brooke was not your run-of-the-mill attorney general. He was the first African American to ever hold that job in the country. People thought Brooke could become a senator, maybe even president. Brooke knew a state takeover of a city investigation was almost unheard of. It was a nuclear option.
3: It was a tremendous gamble for Edward Brooke to take over the investigation of the Strangler murders and preempt the authority of three different counties and five different towns because if it backfired, it would be very bad for him politically.
0: Susan Kelly, author of The Boston Stranglers.
3: I do think humanitarian considerations motivated him to a large extent. He did want to see the murders solved. They did cause him sorrow and concern. But if the Strangler murders were solved under his aegis, it would present him with a huge political advantage.
0: To lead the task force, Brooke appointed a friend, his deputy and law school buddy, John Bottomley. Bottomley's first job was to bring all the various police departments under one tent. Boston, Cambridge, Lynn, Salem, and Lawrence. Their evidence and notes totaled nearly 40,000 pages. All of that needed to be combined, sorted, and cross-checked. It was a large task, but Brooke considered Bottomley robust, capable, and diligent. Others saw a big hole in his resume.
4: John Bottomley was a real estate lawyer. John Bottomley had never conducted a criminal investigation in his life.
0: Here's Mary Sullivan's nephew, writer Casey Sherman.
4: He'd never been to a crime scene. he never interrogated a suspect. So to put him in charge of what at that time was the biggest case in American history was really a huge mistake.
0: People who served under Bottomley and who worked with him have tended to agree with Casey Sherman. Still, that January of 1964, when the task force was announced, the public welcomed it. Bottomley's task force brought together a core group of the best detectives, the ones who had been on the Strangler crime scenes since the beginning. One of those detectives was Phil DiNatali.
1: Well, when the Strangler Bureau was formed shortly after Mary Sullivan's murder, which was January 4th, 1964, the Strangler Bureau... Detectives, and investigators started to recheck and reevaluate the information and the evidence that we got.
0: While Fieldy Natali and his detectives were out pounding the streets and looking for any evidence they'd missed before, the task force did everything it could to drum up new leads. They established a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the Boston Strangler. That generated a whole new batch of leads. And Bottomley had a plan to manage this avalanche of data. All the information, old and new, was being fed into a very expensive, hulking piece of modern technology. A computer. Here's Phil DiNatale back in 1964 talking with reporter Gerald Frank. There's
1: so many names, so many places. For any human mind to... Pull all these
0: names. You're right. It had to be a machine at do it. they're
1: using computers. That is. But they still yeah. haven't come up with anything. Well, yet. they haven't pressed the right button yet.
0: Consolidation of information. Reward money. Computers. The Strangler Task Force was using every option on the table. And at least one option that was a little under the table.
2: Perkos spent a week in Boston visiting the apartments and fingering the possessions of the murdered woman to get the vibrations
4: of their killer.
0: After the break, the Boston police get drunk with a psychic. Now, back to Stranglers.
2: The psychics who regularly see the future are monitored by the nation's newspapers
0: and by television. In the 1960s, psychics and ESP and unexplained phenomena were an American fascination. People were spotting UFOs in their backyards every weekend. A group of Boeing employees claimed they could control number generators with their minds. Mentalists were pop stars, like David Blaine is now. And perhaps the most famous psychic in the world in 1964 was Peter Herkos, a Dutch man with a head injury. Herkos credits
2: his extrasensory powers to a fall from a painter's scaffold in 1943. Unconscious for three days by some accounts and three months by others, he awoke to tell the doctors and nurses secret things about themselves, things which only they knew.
0: Apparently, Herkos was credited with helping solve murders in 17 different countries. A wealthy Boston industrialist offered to fly Herkos in and pay his fees. No cost to the city. John Bottomley, the head of the task force, was willing but wary. He knew Herkos' arrival could be seen as a sign of desperation. A sign that the police couldn't do their job and were clutching at paranormal straws. So Bottomley convinced the press not to report on the visit. At least not until after Herkos left. The famous psychic flew in to the Rhode Island airport.
2: You know, I didn't know what the hell to make of the whole situation. Uh-huh. You know, I'd just been thrown into it the day before.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, and, uh,
0: this is task force member Julian Sashnik from a 1965 interview with Gerald Frank. Sashnik met Peter Herkos in Boston.
2: When I shook hands with him that morning, he, says, he said to me, he says, yeah. uh, your wife, she have bad back. She got very bad trouble. She got to the hospital soon. And, of course, uh, you
1: know, five months
0: later, she had a spinal fusion. Yeah. Sashnik <laughs> was amazed. There was no way Herkos could have known that. And Herkos kept showing off his powers. One afternoon, when a detective arrived late to a meeting and said his car had broken down, Herkos said, that's not true. You were late because you were having sex with your girlfriend. The cop turned six shades of red and his jaw dropped open. Herkos even described in detail how the scene unfolded in her kitchen. After that, Sashnik said the task force was willing to give Herkos whatever he wanted for his process.
2: Somewhere along the line, I don't remember, Peter Peter kept on calling Sherry and says, I got to have my baby here. And she flew into Boston and I picked them up. Uh And uh, they came back to the motel. There was a good deal of drinking going on. Nobody was drunk. But Peter would sip on Scotch on the Rocks and smoke cigars almost continuously.
0: Herkos was on the case for six liquor-fueled days. Sashnik would drive him around Boston, waiting for him to say he had a feeling about a particular location. Other times, Herkos would hold his hand over a pile of evidence on a desk or a hotel room floor. And sometimes these objects would trigger his mind. He likened it to a TV being turned on. He'd describe the images he was seeing, and sometimes he'd speak in voices. It was in one of these moments in Bottomley's office that Herkos was handed a letter.
2: And in walks Lieutenant Leo Martin and says, "Here, Peter, what do you think of this? It was a letter... Addressed to the director of nurses at Boston College. Yes, I have a copy of it. Okay, fine. Does Peter read it or just touch it or what? So uh, First, Peter crumples it up. <laughs> he says, I don't want to read it. Yes. He crumples it up and holds it in his hand, and you can see he's making some sort of a physical effort to concentrate. Uh-huh. And his back was straight like a, like a rod. And sweat starts pouring out, and he says, my God, this son of a bitch, he do it. He says, this son of a bitch.
0: Herkos saw the son of a bitch clearly. He had a sharp nose and a scar on his left arm. He was effeminate, tortured, and nervous. He hated women. And he sold shoes. Bottomley and Sashnik were stunned. The man who wrote the letter, Tony Moran, matched Herkos' description. Right down to Moran's job as a door-to-door salesman, selling nurses' shoes.
2: We call the shoe company... This got us, you know, intrigued in him because this
0: would give him access to uh, right. houses and so forth. Soshnik and Bottomley moved immediately. They detained Moran in a mental hospital and searched his apartment. There, they found a book of yoga drawings with 11 pictures of women crossed out. At this time, the police knew of 11 women who'd been strangled.
2: Bottomley and I looked at each other with eyes open. I could see Bottomley was hooked at that minute, you know. And I was anxious. I wanted to see this thing resolved if I could. So I grabbed uh, Bottomley and I said, Jack, you know, we may have something here. And Jack says, my God, we may have it.
0: Not quite. Herkos' intuitive lead didn't stand up to scrutiny. Moran's alibis checked out. And he knew little about the crimes. A judge ordered that he should be released immediately. But Moran remained in the mental hospital voluntarily. After only six days, Herkos left Boston. Three days later, he was arrested for impersonating an FBI agent investigating the Kennedy assassination. The whole Herkos affair was an embarrassment, but Attorney General Edward Brooke defended his decision. In bringing Mr. Herkos to Boston, I believe that the people of
4: Massachusetts had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Mr. Herkos did not cost the Commonwealth any money. He did not impede the regular
0: investigation. The regular investigation carried on for another year as Bottomley and his team kept grinding away. And ultimately, the lead that broke the standstill came out of this grind. Thank goodness for Detective Phil De Natalie.
1: And I like to go back a little why I want to become a detective. And the reason, number one, was my father was a uh, detective in the Boston Police Department for 38 years. And all my brothers, growing up, we followed my father's police life very, very closely.
0: Phil Natalie and his three brothers all became detectives, just like their dad. But only Phil went on to be portrayed on the silver screen.
2: Looks like she's been dead for at least 24 hours. Any rape? No, but she's been more just like the others. In
0: 1968, Hollywood made a movie about the case, starring Tony Curtis as the Boston Strangler. Actor George Kennedy played the part of Filthy Natale.
1: You know, that was beginning to get to me. The way they let him in. They're all scared, but they still open their doors. Nobody ever thinks it'll happen to them. They don't want to get strangled.
0: Movie detective Filthy Natale is debonair, always ready with a one-liner and he solves the crime in 90 minutes. The real Filthy Natale was an obsessive, detail-oriented detective who did the kind of painstaking legwork they don't show in movies, sketching diagrams at his kitchen table over the weekends, checking and rechecking leads, digging into public records, and maintaining contacts.
1: So again, my theory and my father's theory was always that the best police officer is the man that knows the people on his route. Without them, a police officer is not worth a damn. That's his backbone of information, is the neighbors that he knows.
0: In early 1965, it was precisely this kind of old-fashioned social networking that paid off. A friend of Phil Di Natale called him with a lead.
1: We had a young girl who wrote to uh, the head of security of Mass General.
4: This is Friday, January 8th, 1965.
0: This is John Di Natale reading from his dad's journal entry from the day he got this call.
4: The chief of security called me to Mass General. He told me about a good suspect and gave me some information on one Albert H. DeSalvo of Malden. Uh, Albert
1: H. DeSalvo, yes, that's what it is
4: an unknown nurse gave him the information.
1: And this young girl said that Albert D. Sable came to her apartment and, and told her that he was the Boston Strangler after he raped her and bound and gagged her and spread-eagled her. The same M.O. as some of the stranding victims had silk stockings still tied around her ankle where they were tied to bedposts.
0: This is the moment, the very first moment, that the name Albert DeSalvo got attached to the Boston Strangler. And the lead originated from a woman we still can't identify. She wanted to remain anonymous. And
4: and, and they tried day and night to figure out who she was because they wanted to interview her. They wanted more information and they never got it. But at Think about, again, it's 1965. You know, a lot of women who were victims of sexual assault never reported it. As my dad said, she should have gotten the reward because she gave the information. She identified DeSalvo as a suspect.
0: After the break, Detective Fildi Natale follows the lead of a lifetime. Now, back to Stranglers. In early 1965, Detective Fildy Natale set out to track Albert DeSalvo. And the first thing he uncovered DeSalvo was already in prison. The Cambridge police had locked him up a couple of months earlier on several counts of breaking and entering, and intent to commit an unnatural and lascivious act. Dean Natale went down to the Cambridge police station and told them, hey, you've got a guy here who I think might be the Boston Strangler.
4: And they said, Phil, he is not the Strangler. You're wasting your time. We've interviewed him. He's in Bridgewater now. We got him for three or four uh, assaults and rapes here
0: in Cambridge. It's true. The Cambridge police had asked DeSalvo about the Strangler crimes. This was fairly common at the height of the panic, especially with a guy like DeSalvo who had a long rap sheet as a sexual predator. Here's Detective Di Natale's partner, Jim Mellon.
2: Some policemen had presence of mind to say to him, kid, are you the strangler? Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. said, don't be absurd. I read that, don't be absurd, because i surprised that he used such language. This this surprised me, too, because this is... A little highfalutin. Much, much too too highfalutin. Uh
0: But of course, the cops didn't take DeSalvo at his word, He was dismissed as a suspect in the Boston Stranglings because of his two-year prison sentence for the Measuring Man crimes. DeSalvo was sitting in prison until May of 1963, which overlapped with the first full year of the Stranglings.
4: Phil, he was in jail for the first seven murders. They said, you got the wrong guy. Unequivocally, you have the wrong guy.
0: Dina wasn't ready to drop DeSalvo yet, that anonymous nurse's letter was so specific, so horrible. She had said that DeSalvo had bragged about the stranglings. So Phil dug in, and he started by tracing DeSalvo's history. So this is Phil's research. It's all of DeSalvo's crimes listed by Phil from the time DeSalvo was a kid. Two arrests at age 12 for assault and battery? Then, as a young man, there are charges for stealing cars, breaking and entering, theft. He goes into the military, then he gets kicked out of the military. And then, in the late 1950s, he's arrested for rape and attempted rape. And there's a note, there's a note from Phil that one of these assaults was committed in a building right next door to where Sophie Clark was strangled and killed. That'd be victim number six. All of those crimes came before DeSalvo's con as the Measuring Man. And Phil noticed there was an odd difference between DeSalvo the Brutal Criminal and DeSalvo in his persona as the Measuring Man. Women described DeSalvo as polite and even charming in those encounters. He seduced more than a few of them. Phil realized DeSalvo's smooth talk could help explain one of the enduring mysteries of the case. How the killer had gained access to so many women's homes, without force and without a key. Phil thought DeSalvo's profile was a great match for the Boston Strangler. But the timeline he'd gotten from police didn't work so well. DeSalvo's measuring man sentence had stretched until May 1963. That meant DeSalvo couldn't have murdered the first seven Strangler victims. But Phil was an old-school detective, and he knew when the facts don't add up, dig deeper.
4: That little gut told him, I'm going to go recheck this, because my dad was was always like that when it came to investigations.
0: That's third-generation detective John Di Natale.
4: So because they said, hey, Phil, you know, he's in jail, he's not your guy, my dad would say, no, 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 I'm not starting from point C, I need to start at point A. So when I get to C, I know I'm standing on firm ground and I'm not going by somebody else's assumptions. So he went and he checked it. Today, you punch somebody's name into a computer if you're a police officer and up comes his criminal history. Well, back then, you know, you had to go to the courthouse and he went to the courthouse Went through the files with his cousin, Tony, who was the chief probation officer in Middlesex County.
0: Detective Phil Natali realized that the files in the Cambridge police station wouldn't show the terms of any parole DeSalvo might have had. So he hand-searched the courthouse archives. And there it was, clear as day. The records showed that a judge had been moved when DeSalvo promised he would turn over a new leaf. And the parole board had released him in April of 1962.
4: DeSalvo had been released early; he'd been released a year early.
0: Albert DeSalvo had walked free two months before the first Boston strangling. So that's amazing that he—he he, if they had known that he was out. Maybe he would have been caught earlier. He would have been looked into earlier as a suspect.
4: Well, maybe the Cambridge police. This all
0: all came down to a clerical error? In
4: some respects, yes. And in the fact that, you know, the Cambridge police, the detectives who were working on that, obviously weren't as good as my father was. Mm. You know, they had him. They had him right there in a room. So obviously they blew it.
0: Detective Phil Natali now knew DeSalvo was at large in Boston during the stranglings. It was a breakthrough, but it wasn't proof.
1: Now, with this information, we don't have a habit of going to the newspapers and say, uh, Albert DeSalvo is a Boston Strangler, and then we'll solve it, or we'll prove it. We had to investigate him thoroughly before we go any place. Uh, we had a bank account. We went far as checking his automobiles to see if he was tagged in the Back Bay area.
0: Phil found the construction company where DeSalvo worked and obtained DeSalvo's employment records. And we
1: found out that during the murders he was available. We also found out that he was in the areas of the murder at the time. These murders were were, uh, committed.
0: Again and again, the records showed the times DeSalvo had off work lined up with the times the women had been strangled.
1: If he was late in the morning, that same day that he was late in the morning, we found that's the time that person was murdered. If he has gone home early, we found out that that was the murder time. So you see that we had him pretty well tied up. We even knew the color of his underwear.
0: Phil Natalie's hard work had paid off. He was on the verge of solving the biggest case of his life, And all he had to do was go get his man. At that point, in February 1965, Albert DeSalvo was serving time at Bridgewater State Hospital for the criminally insane. Next time on Stranglers. Detective Phil Natale goes to Bridgewater to meet the Boston Strangler. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashhee, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John DeLore, Kate Tibbets, and Taylor Duwicky. Special thanks to Ren Ross, Paul DuBois, and Bill Irwin, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are Charlie Thurston, R. Ward Duffy, Sharon Mashhee. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John Natalie of Di Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Natalie, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, Visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. Phil Natalie goes to Bridgewater State Hospital to meet Albert DeSalvo.
1: Well, I just want this to be on record, and this is the truth to so help me God, that we
0: had him first. And I go to a prison outside of Boston to meet a man who knew Albert DeSalvo.
4: He said the reason why he was so successful in subduing a victim was because he had a particular stranglehold. That he had learned when he was in Germany
0: in the army. That's next time on Stranglers.